Our scripture today comes from 2 Chronicles, chapter 34, it's on page 454, in the Bible in the chair in front of you. Then the king sent and gathered together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. And the king went up to the house of the Lord with all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the priests and the Levites, all the people, both great and small. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of the covenant that were written in this book. Then he made all who were present in Jerusalem and in Benjamin join in it. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. And Josiah took away all the abominations from all the territory that belonged to the people of Israel and made all who were present in Israel serve the Lord their God. All his days they did not turn away from following the Lord, the God of their fathers. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Thanks, Bob. Well, good morning, everyone. My name's Joey. I think I've met probably most of you, but if I haven't, you know, uh, come introduce yourself afterwards. I'd love to say hi and get to know you just a little bit. I'm one of the lead pastors here at Faith. And uh, last week, if you were here, I told you about an agreement that Jen and I have with one another that whichever one of us gets up first in the morning is exempted from making the bed. You know, whoever gets up last has to make the bed. Well, I uh, heard from many of you over the last week that you were putting this particular type of agreement into practice. Uh, one person in particular said that he and his wife agreed to do this, and then she very intentionally got up five minutes before him every day this week <laughs> in order to force him to make the bed. Well... I need to tell you that this morning, I was up first, and when Jenna got up, she looked right at me and said, I am not making the bed this morning, <laughs> because I'm going to take a nap, and you can tell the whole church, see if I care. <laughs> now, what am I supposed to do with that? I mean, we, we had an agreement, and she's flagrantly breaking it and is refusing to submit to the authority of the body of the church, holding her accountable for it. I mean, what am I supposed to do? I was thinking about it. I basically have two options, right? I could really lean into the law of it and be like, no, honey, you see, this, is the, this, is, this was your idea. This is the agreement, right? Or kind of lean into the, the love side of it or the grace side of it and be, you know what, honey, it's, I know you're tired. It's okay. Don't worry about it. Now, what are we supposed to do when people break agreements like that with us? Actually, surprisingly enough, that's the same fundamental question that is underneath the story that we're going to read today from the life of Josiah, except at a much bigger scale than just about making the bed. So we're three weeks now into this series we're calling Faith for Pagans as we're exploring the life and the faith of King Josiah, the last great king of Israel. Technically, actually, he was the last great king of Judah, the southern half of Israel, the southern half of the country. You know, by the time he uh, took power in Judah, the northern half had already been conquered. Uh, most of the people had been forcibly removed, and others who weren't Jewish were moved in, and they commingled and mixed together and all that. 
Anyway, we're, we're exploring King Josiah's faith because he lived in the midst of a pagan, pluralistic culture. His country had fallen so far from their commitment to worship God alone that the worship of a whole host of other gods had entered into the country's national religious life. But the God of Israel, the God of Judah, was unique among all the other so-called gods who were worshipped in the ancient Near East. Uh, See, in a pagan pluralistic worldview, there are many gods, gods of agriculture, gods of commerce, gods of business, of love, of music, of war, Uh, and, and each one of them has its own area of influence, its own area of control. But none of them demanded complete lordship over someone's life. They only had control over their specific area. And so everyone had their own God based on the region they lived in or the trade they were part of, whether they were a farmer or a blacksmith or whatever. And it was essentially, this pagan pluralistic context is essentially sort of a choose-your-own-adventure type of religion where the worshiper gets to pick which God he wants to worship based on where he lives and what his needs are. So pagan pluralism had within it, it had room for the existence of the God of Israel, but it couldn't accept the exclusive sovereignty of this God. A pagan pluralistic worldview can't accept the idea that there is a God who rules over all of the other gods, over everyone and everything, over all of creation, over every local and regional God. See, but the God of the Bible doesn't allow himself to be considered as just one of many gods in a row for his people to pick and choose from. He's not content to be in control of just part of our lives. The God of the Bible demands full sovereignty over every square inch of us. So we can either reject him totally or accept him completely. Those are the only two options he gives us. Which is what we're going to see happen here in King Josiah's life. Because this week we're reading about an episode in his life in which his relationship with God went to a deeper level. To a more profoundly intimate and unique place. To a place of total acceptance of God's rule and God's role in his life. It's a story that's told in both accounts of the story of King Josiah's life. Uh, For our scripture reading, we read from 2 Chronicles 34, but we're actually going to turn to 2 Kings 23, which has just a little bit more detail in it. So if you've you've already turned to 2 Chronicles, sorry, just flip to the left a little bit, and you'll find 2 Kings 23. Um, If you you didn't bring a Bible with you or forgot to bring one, that uh, black Bible under the seat in front of you, the passage we're considering is on page 388. So feel free to follow along. So as we look at 2 Kings 23 and we read the story of Josiah's life, we're going to see from him what a relationship with God looks like. Three things specifically. We're going to see the uniqueness of a relationship with God, the results of a relationship with God, and also the tension in a relationship with God. So the uniqueness of our relationship with God, the results of our relationship with God, and the tension within our relationship with God. All right, let's jump in. First, we're going to consider the uniqueness of our relationship with God. So let's take a look at the first two verses from 2 Kings 23, uh, which tells the story in almost the exact same words as 2 Chronicles does. Verse 1, Then the king sent, and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him. And the king went up to the house of the Lord, and with him all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the prophets, all the people, both small and great, 
And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. So if you weren't here last week or you don't remember what we talked about, last week we read the story about the temple renovation. Uh, The temple had sat largely unused for roughly 75 years or so, barely functional in its state. And Josiah was going through this process of attempting to restore true worship to Israel. Part of that was a public works project to rebuild the temple. Right, so his, his authorities go in, they take all the money out of the temple for use in rebuilding it. And when they get all the money out, they find this other treasure hidden in there, a book of the law. And when the book of the law, or what we would today refer to as Deuteronomy, when it was read to Josiah, he responded in repentance and despair. Because he knew his nation had broken its marriage vows to God, but he didn't know how bad it was until he heard it read. That's the story that immediately precedes today's story. Today's story is a reaction to finding out that Judah had broken its covenant relationship with God. So Josiah pulls everyone together for this solemn assembly. Look at verse 3. And the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people joined in the covenant. Now, what's a covenant? You know, it's an archaic word that we don't really use all that often anymore. I'm kind of into, like, etymology and where words come from, and I looked up covenant and the graph of its usage. You know, it's really high in the 1850s, and then it drops off right about now. Nobody uses the word covenant anymore, but it's the word that's used over and over and over again to describe the relationship between God and his people, the formal relationship. You know, if you've read all the way through the Hebrew Scriptures, you've read about a covenant with Noah, a covenant with Abraham, a covenant with Moses, a covenant with David. And here Josiah recommits to the covenant relationship. Now the best definition of covenant that I've ever come across that speaks to the nature of a covenant is is pretty simple. It's this. A covenant is the union of law and love. A covenant is the union of law and love. Well, what does that mean? Take a look at verse 3 again. Notice the words that have to do with law, commandments, testimonies, statutes, perform the words, keep the covenants. These are law words, words of requirements, like a contract. And like a contract, a covenant has rules and requirements, but there are benefits for keeping the contract. They're called blessings. There's penalties for violating the contract. They're called curses. And like any good contract, the penalties and the blessings are are what give the contract backbone. You know, they're what give it sticking power in someone's life. I mean, you can imagine what good is a contract without penalties. When I bought my first car, a 1985 Mercury Cougar I bought from my uncle, he told me when I purchased it that he had had it longer than he'd had his wife. He was a little reticent to give it up. Uh, I bought it for $800, and I borrowed the money from my parents at 8% interest. I didn't know that that was bad back then. My dad wrote out a formal contract for me to sign. It came with requirements. Payments were due on the first of the month. It came with blessings. As long as the payments were made, I got to use the car. It came with penalties. For every day I was late with a payment, I was levied a $5 fine on a $50 payment. 
it hurt. One time I was only able to pay the penalty and not the actual car payment itself. But if there hadn't been any penalties for late payments, then how reliable do you think a high school student who would rather spend his money on Star Wars action figures than car payments would have been in keeping the payments? Yeah, not very reliable. So a covenant is not, this is important, a covenant is not less than a contract. Okay, a covenant is similar to a contract in that there's laws, there's requirements, there's penalties, there's blessings, there's benefits, there's curses. A covenant is not less than a contract. It's all that is necessary to make the covenant work. But a covenant is also more than a contract. Because a covenant is not just about law, about legal requirements. A covenant is also about love. Remember, it's a union of law and love. Look at verse 3 again, and you'll see the words that speak to the affection the heart orientation that comes into this covenant. All his heart, all his soul. If we went back to Deuteronomy and looked at the words of the covenant there, we'd see God saying things like, I want to be your God, not just a God. I want you to be my people, not just a people. There's personal relationship words used here. And what's unique about a covenant and a covenant relationship is that it's actually more loving because it's legally binding. A covenant relationship is more loving because it's legal. One author writes about it this way and says, a covenant is a relationship that is more loving and intimate than a merely legal relationship, and yet more binding and enduring and accountable than a merely personal relationship. It's more loving and intimate than just a legal relationship, and yet more binding than just a personal relationship. It's a stunning blend of law and love. A stunning blend of law and love. Which, you know, is kind of hard for us to understand because uh, we don't often think in terms of covenant relationships anymore. We're a little too focused on ourselves, on making ourselves happy, on expressing our, the authentic you, uh, and meeting our own needs. So most of our relationships are more consumeristic than they are covenantal. You know, a consumer relationship is one in which my needs will always outweigh yours or anyone else's needs. A consumer relationship only continues as long as I'm getting out of it what I need in order to justify the cost of being in it. As long as my needs are being met, then I'll stick around. As long as I can't get a better deal or a better relationship somewhere else, then I'll stick with this one. And, and that's actually an appropriate, relation, it's an appropriate arrangement for a number of different types of relationships, uh, but not for all of them. A marriage, for instance, is not intended to be contractual or consumeristic. It's supposed to be covenantal. You know, when two people face one another and pledge to love each other regardless of the circumstances of life, they're creating a covenant, a union of law and love. It's more loving because it's legally binding and more lasting and enduring than simply a personal relationship. You know, it's a covenant in which each one says to the other, this relationship is more important than my needs. I'm in this relationship 100% whether you are or not because the relationship itself is what is most important. Not me, not you, but us. And when a covenant is working well, it's the most 
it's the most profound, it's the most secure, it's the most life-changing, the most personally enriching, the, the most joyously wonderful relationship that two people could possibly be in. So is it any wonder that throughout the Old Testament, the, the relationship between God and his people is described as a marriage, not a contractual, consumeristic marriage, where either party can walk out on the other one when their needs aren't being met. It's a covenantal marriage, a union of law and love, in which God's people have pledged themselves to God and God has pledged himself to his people. It's a relationship that's more loving because both parties are legally bound to one another. That's the relationship that God has always desired with his people. Which leads us to ask ourselves, what's the nature of my relationship with God? What's the nature of yours? Are you in a covenant relationship with God or a consumer relationship? In other words, do you, do you view your relationship with God as something that's there to meet your needs? Uh, that as long as God comes through for you, then you'll continue to show up for him on Sundays, maybe serve a little, maybe drop a little in the plate in hopes that uh, he'll keep coming through for you. He'll feel obligated to bless you. Or maybe I know some of us have walked away from God because he didn't give us what we thought we needed from him. You know, we wanted him to make life easier or to help us achieve our goals, but on our terms, uh, not on his. You know, it doesn't work like that. God is not like a train that shows up according to the clock. He, he's, a, he's a person, but an infinitely more wise and powerful and majestic and holy than you and I are. So if we're going to be in a relationship with him in which we tell him our needs and expect him to meet them according to our timetable and according to our desires, we're going to be disappointed because that's not usually what's best for us. He knows better than we do what's good for us. Often we're like three-year-olds asking our parents for M&Ms for breakfast. And God says, well, that's not the best thing right now. But we walk away when we don't get the bowl of candy. So what's your relationship with God like? Covenant? Consumer? Are you sticking with God through whatever because God has stuck with you literally through death? Or are you hoping to get good things from God and in the process, more or less, just ignore the God who gives the good things? See, the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in the book. And all the people joined the covenant. So Josiah, having recommitted to the covenant, then to this, the unique nature of a relationship with God, uh, then turns to live out the results of that relationship with God. And the next 17 verses show the results of that relationship with God. And in, in 2, Kings, uh, 2 Chronicles just kind of glosses over the whole thing. He says he put away all, all the abominations. But 2 Kings takes the time to spell them out. It's a litany of all the reforms that Josiah took. I'm not going to read the whole section, so I'll just summarize it for you. Josiah uh, begins by removing from the temple itself all of the ritual worship utensils used for the worship of other gods, which he then burns them to dust. Then he deposed all the priests within Judah that had led in worship to other gods, and he destroyed the houses of, used by the male prostitutes who had created a worship service to God that involved some ritualistic sexual acts designed to encourage God to grant fertility to the nation. 
Then he took all of the country priests who were giving offerings to God in various high places, and he brought them all back to Jerusalem to the temple. Uh, He went to each altar at each high place, and he defiled each one, uh, probably by spreading ashes from human remains on them so that they couldn't be used in worship anymore. Then he destroyed all the different altars that different kings had built to other gods, uh, even an altar that King Solomon himself had built. Now, that was all within Judah, his own country, but he didn't stop there. He went up north into what used to be the other half of Israel, to a city called Bethel, which had become um, sort of an alternate worship center for the northern kingdom when they didn't have access to the temple anymore. And he pulled down the altar to God that was there, and he burnt it into dust, and then destroyed the altars of false worship in all the high places of the northern kingdom as well. Does that sound extreme to you? Does that sound excessive? Like, maybe he took it a little far? Because I'll admit, when you read it, it sounds like Josiah um, was single-mindedly purposeful in destroying all this false worship. I mean, even to the point where he destroyed what we today consider historically significant artifacts. Uh, He took away all the convenient places of worship and forced everyone to go to Jerusalem to worship. I'm sure sure they were grumbling about economic reasons and wanting to get all the money in the city or something like that. Uh, even, Even the priests, and this was the hardest for me to read, even the priests of other gods who led people away from the true God were put to death on their own altars. It's pretty extreme. But I think we need to remember this is not a consumer relationship that the people are in. Uh, There is no room for a marketplace of religious options within the nation. And the people consented to this religious cleansing. Remember the end of verse 3, we read that all the people joined in the covenants. Covenant which had stipulations of putting away all false gods. So this purging of false worship is a natural result of being in a covenant relationship with God. Because... A relationship with God is not like your relationship with your bank. You know, when you open a checking account down at Chase Bank or whoever you bank with, you aren't required to put away all other banks, right? You're not required to depose the tellers from Fifth Third and burn their ashes on their teller windows or whatever those things are called, right? No, because there's a legitimate marketplace, a financial marketplace there where you get to shop around to make sure you're getting the best deal you can. That's, That's a consumer relationship, and it should be one. But when you get married, a covenant relationship, when you get married, you are required to put away all other suitors. No other loves are allowed into a marriage contract, into a marriage covenant. All those old boyfriends and girlfriends, don't be friends with them on Facebook. Don't leave room in your life for other loves to arise and pull you away from your one true, committed, legally binding love. See, there's no room in a marriage covenant for additional spouses. And because the nation as a whole is married to God in a covenant relationship with God, the the nation had to eliminate within itself every emotional attachment to other gods. In the same way that a husband or wife squashes within themselves potential emotional attachments to anyone or anything that could potentially draw them away from their love. And if that sounds extreme to you, uh, I would suggest it's because you, you don't quite understand the nature of a relationship with God. It's covenantal. 
which means there's no room within for a divided heart. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. With the entirety of what you have to give, love God. And what the nation did in itself, on the whole, we need to do in ourselves. So how are we doing at rooting out within us and casting off these other loves? The first step, of course, is identifying them. It's very difficult to identify these other things that are drawing out our, our, our loves. I mean, it's easy when it's a physical idol, like literally on a shelf, or when it's a handmade altar to a foreign god or another false god or something. Those are easy to see and destroy, but it's harder to tear down the idols that are in our hearts. We usually only identify them in the process of losing them. So one way to identify an idol you've set up in your heart is to ask yourself, Uh, what do I need? What must I have in order to make life worth living? You know, what's, what's this thing that is the source of my joy and happiness or meaning and identity? In other words, what is that thing that if you lost it, you'd say, I'm just not sure life is worth living anymore. I'm not sure it's worth continuing on because I have lost this thing. Or conversely, the other side of it is, what is that thing that you would be willing to bargain with God in order to keep? God, if you just give me this, I'll love and serve you forever. God, if you just don't take away that, and I will give you everything I have. Whatever that thing is that you're willing to bargain with God in order to keep or in order to gain, that's your true love. And you're using God to get you to that. Or for some of us, we should ask ourselves, what's that thing that we're angry with God about? What's that thing that we had and lost or have never gotten that makes us look at God in anger and ask, what did I do to deserve this? That's an idol. That's a love drawing you away from God. That's a a false God in your life demanding your worship. And while our modern, individualistic, Western culture believes that love is the truest part of ourselves, uh, that what we love can never be contradicted by those around us, that we are morally obligated to pursue what we love, that's not what Scripture teaches. Uh, Scripture takes a decidedly dimmer view of man teaching that our fundamental problem is that we love the wrong things to the wrong extent and in the wrong ways. That we love some things more than we should and other things not enough. All of our rebellion against God, all of our sinfulness, all of our own selfishness, all of our destructive behavior comes from loving wrong things too much and right things not enough. Which is why the church throughout history has consistently talked about ordering our loves, about getting our loves into the right hierarchy, about putting the right things in the right places, about loving God first and last and ultimately, and about loving the Lord our God with all our hearts, all our souls, all our minds, all our strength. Which is actually why we get together every week to reorient ourselves 
to God and to each other and the world through God, to grow in our love for God. You can even say, uh, as the Christian philosopher Jamie Smith says, that discipleship, this process of growing in Christ, discipleship is how you curate your heart to be attentive to and intentional about what you love. So how are you doing at curating your own heart? How are you doing at managing all of the things that your heart is drawn to? What's your success rate at reordering and reorienting your loves? How are you doing at rooting out the emotional attachments to things that are drawing you away from God? If you think Josiah went just a little too far in removing the potential for hearts to wander away from God, or maybe that he took this whole relationship with God thing just a little too far, a little too extreme, then again, I would suggest that you don't really comprehend the seriousness and uniqueness of a relationship with God, or the potential for your heart to be drawn away from God. It could be that for you, a relationship with God is more about convenience and what you can get out of it than a covenant. But I don't want you to be discouraged if you find within yourself loves that you just can't seem to eradicate or to put in the right place. That's, that's part of being fallen. That's part of being human. That's why God keeps showing up over and over and over again and saying, here I am. Look at what I've done for you. Look how much I love you. Uh, and and that, that tension within our hearts points towards this third thing we're looking at this morning, the, the tension in our relationship with God. There's a tension in our relationship with God. And it comes through Josiah's story, though not explicitly in this text. We kind of have to lean towards what we're going to be reading in the next couple weeks. See, Josiah's recommitment to the covenant is a turning point in the history of the nation of Judah. The author of Second Chronicles tells us that all Josiah's days, they did not turn away from following the Lord, the God of their fathers. And yet... Immediately after Josiah is gone, the people's hearts turned once again to the worship of other gods. Josiah's own children, three of whom succeed him as king, each one is evaluated, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the, all the abominations of their fathers. They led the people, the officials, even the priests themselves away from God, even going so far as reinstating pagan worship and all the idols again within the temple itself. It's these actions, that history, that led the prophets to cry out to God to do something. Ezekiel pleads with God for a new heart for his people. Isaiah longs for an everlasting covenant, one that won't be broken. Jeremiah writes about the need for a new covenant, not like the old one, which was broken. A new covenant, one in which the law is written on the hearts of God's people, not imposed from the outside. One in which love is divinely inspired within the hearts of God's people. A new covenant in which every other covenant finds its fulfillment and its purpose. A new covenant which supersedes all of the old ones. The old covenants couldn't resolve the tension. And so a new one is needed. 
See, the, the fundamental tension of every covenant all throughout the Hebrew Scriptures is that as much as God promises to bless, still his people walk away from him. So what is God supposed to do? I mean, if he ignores their transgression in order to bless them, as he promised he would do, I will always forgive, I will always bless, then where is his holiness? What point are the penalties if he's just going to overlook them? But if he condemns his people, as he said he would, as he promised he would do, if you walk away from me, all these curses will, will, become, will come upon you. They will overtake you. If he condemns his people, as he said he would, then where is the love? Where's the grace? Where's the forgiveness? What point are the promises to bless? So how can a loving God condemn his people? And how can a righteous God bless rebels? The Bible commentator Michael Wilcock captures the tension perfectly when he writes this. It is as though the Lord is saying, I have sworn to give you the whole of this land, yet I have also sworn not to give it to a disobedient people. You put me in an impossible situation. What is this you have done? And by what fearful means do you think I am to solve this dilemma? Well, the fearful means turns out to be Jesus. God himself taking on the role of the king, of the covenant mediator. God himself became man to live the life his people should have lived to keep the covenant. And God himself became man to the die the death his people should have died for breaking the covenant. In the ultimate union of law and love, God himself took on the curses, the penalties for disobeying the covenant so that his people, you and me, could have the blessings of the covenant as if we had kept it ourselves. So knowing that our disobedience, our disobedience to the covenant cost Jesus his life. You know, it makes us pay super close attention to any time God says, here's what I'm calling you to do. Here's what I'm expecting of you. Here's my requirements for you, because God takes the law, he takes the requirements so seriously that his own son had to die for them to be fulfilled. And because God takes the requirements so seriously, we take them seriously too. We resist sin like crazy, never downplaying the seriousness of our rebellion against God. But we also know that because Jesus has earned the blessings of the covenant on our behalf. There's no condemnation for us when we do fall and break the covenant. So now our obedience is motivated by gratitude for the, the marvelous gift we've been given. Now we live just for the joy of bringing joy to God. Our covenant mediator, our covenant king who kept the covenant for us 
when we couldn't and took the punishment for us when it would have destroyed us. And because of that, our lives become a union of law and love, a living covenant relationship with God. Father, you have been so good to us and yet so righteous with us. You have been just and the justifier of the ungodly. You poured out your wrath, your anger at a broken covenant on your son who willingly put himself in our place. And in that moment, that first moment that you made a covenant with your people, Jesus' fate was sealed because it took his substitution on our behalf. God, you have, you have graced us so richly with the gift of your son. Form within us the gratitude that helps us live for the joy of bringing joy to you. We pray to you through your son, our covenant king.